This is a talk by Joel titled Transforming Emotions 1 Spacious Awareness, recorded October 2009 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, the theme of this retreat is transforming afflicted emotions. That particular term is a Tibetan term, and what we're talking about in other traditions is called bad character traits or sinful qualities or something like that. And the essence of it is those self-centered emotions like greed or lust or jealousy or hatred or whatever that end up causing suffering to ourselves or others. Now, seekers in exoteric traditions often assume that the task is to get rid of these emotions. They hear like, we're going to purify ourselves, that means we're going to purify ourselves of greed, of anger, of jealousy, and things like that. We're going to completely get rid of them. And then they often set about trying to repress those emotions. And eventually they think enlightenment is about getting rid of these. Once we get rid of all these afflicted emotions, these self-centered emotions, that will constitute enlightenment. And we will live in a state of complete equanimity. So we'll always be smiling, that little Buddha smile, unfazed, you know. You uh, open your IRA statement, you lost half of your IRA this year. Ah, you know, smiling, nothing bothers you. <laughs> you turn on the news and there's been an earthquake, a hundred thousand people are dead in a tsunami. Oh, you're smiling, nothing bothers you, you know. And really a lot of people feel, oh, this is the end of the path. I will not be bothered by anything that happens in life again. Won't that be wonderful? I will be invulnerable. And that is the ego's ultimate dream. That is about the farthest thing from enlightenment possible. Now, it is true that on a mystical path, we begin by trying to check acting on these self-centered emotions. So we begin by practicing morality where we actually uh, have precepts. We step in and check the action that might come out of these emotions. So this looks like, yeah, we're on the road to getting rid of these self-centered emotions. But that's not true. Those are just the preliminary steps here. From a mystic's point of view... There's nothing inherently afflicted about emotions. Emotions themselves are like energy. It's neither positive nor negative. It all depends on what you do with it. So, uh, you know, if you have fire, you can burn people or you can heat your house. Fire itself, you can't say, is it good or bad all depends on what we do with it. Here's what the Tibetan Lama Gendon Rinpoche says. The special teaching of the Vajrayana tells us that the emotion itself is not a problem. It is simply mental activity, energy on the move, which becomes either positive or negative according to our reaction to it. If this energy of the mind occurs in a state of confusion, a state of clinging or resistance, we have what we call ordinary emotions, i.e. afflicted emotions, which give rise to different forms of suffering, 
If, however, the same energy manifests without confusion, it operates as a wisdom activity which benefits living beings. So the, the energy, in the sense, is neutral. The energy of the emotion, and it all depends on how we experience it. If we experience it in confusion, if we experience it under delusion, if we experience it through the prism of the story of I, that's what makes it afflicted. But if we could liberate it from the story of I, if we could free it from delusion, we would find out it's a wisdom activity or a wisdom energy, as they sometimes say. And he says this is the special teaching of Vajrayana. Vajrayana is a Tibetan uh, vehicle. Vajra means diamond, Yana means vehicle. So they distinguish their vehicle, their spiritual path from the Mahayana, from the Hinayana, from other kinds of vehicles. And they say this is the special teaching. Well, it may be within Buddhism a special teaching, but it's not uh, a special to Vajrayana. You'll find similar teachings in all mystical traditions. Listen, for example, to Ibn Arabi. He writes, he was a Sufi, he writes, Character traits have been divided into noble and base. However, unveiling a gnosis shows us that there is nothing in the cosmos except the character traits of God. Hence, there are no base character traits. All are his character traits. So all are noble, though this is not recognized. So again, it appears to be base because we don't recognize its true nature. If we got rid of base character traits, we would get rid of God's character traits. If we got rid of afflicted emotions, we would get rid of wisdom energies. So it's not about getting rid of. This is extremely important. What we need to do is to purify or liberate the afflicted emotions. And we do that by seeing through the delusion and experiencing directly, nakedly, their true nature. So it's uncovering in a certain sense. Here's the Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum. This is what all our worship is about to purify these qualities within us from their own evil and to raise them up to God by using them in the act of his service. This comes about by means of proper seeing. How do we purify emotions? How do we liberate emotions? It's very simple. Just by proper seeing. By seeing their true nature. And that transforms them. It transforms them as even a misnomer. That nothing is actually ultimately transformed. Only at the relative level does it seem like it's transformed. They're just recognizing what's really always been there. So that's what we're going to be doing on this retreat. We're going to be liberating emotions from the delusion of self and the story of I which is uh, based on that delusion, which in a certain sense captivates these emotions and weaves them all into the story of I, and then they get distorted. And then we experience them in a distorted way.
Now, the teachings we're going to be implementing on this retreat are based on the Tibetan version of these teachings. First of all, because at least as far as I know, the Tibetans have the most precise terminology to talk about them, and perhaps more importantly, they have the most uh, precise methods for actually liberating them. So where other traditions, you'll run across the same principle and you'll run across the same teachings, but they're not quite as precise and they don't necessarily have the formal kinds of practices that we can use. So we are basing these practices on the Tibetan practice, but I want you to know you'll find this in all mystical traditions. This is not just a Tibetan uh, insight. So, now, very important, very important. In order to do these practices, we must be able to do them in a state of spacious awareness. We must have the space where we can allow these emotions to arise. And spacious awareness has itself three qualities. It's an undistracted awareness. So attention is not caught up in any story, any drama. We always can experience emotions in the context of some drama. You know, uh, somebody did something to me, I did something to somebody else, da-da-da-da-da. But that's, from a, a mystical point of view, a distracted attention because it's been distracted into the drama. The second is that in spacious awareness there's complete detachment. Detachment does not what it so often means in English that no emotion is arising. I'm detached, I'm above it all. It has a very straightforward, simple, spiritual meaning in mystical traditions. It means neither grasping nor pushing away. So you might be on fire with emotion. And detachment simply means you're not owning it, you're not seizing it, you're not turning it into something, or you're not repressing it, you're not trying to get rid of it, you're not trying to move away from it. So, undistracted awareness, a detached awareness, and a boundless awareness. A boundless awareness that no matter how intense any emotion gets, the awareness is bigger. And actually, uh, when you do this kind of practice, what you find is, uh, at a certain point, you welcome the intensity because it's as though the intensity pushes the boundaries out more. If you're detached, if you're not resisting, if you're resisting, then the more intense the emotion gets, the more you're trying to shove it and you get into a real battle. But if you can relax into that spacious awareness, it's, it's bigger than everything. So we're going to spend some time just cultivating this spacious awareness before we even begin to do any of these practices of transforming afflicted emotions. And I'm telling you this because a lot of people, you know, want to get to the practice. Oh, yeah, let me go transform those afflicted emotions. And they don't spend the time, they don't realize how important this is, the cultivation of the spacious awareness. So they haven't laid the groundwork. So they can't end up transforming anything. Well, all it does is the emotions just get more afflicted. So this part of the, what we're going to be doing here in the first few days is extremely important. It isn't just some warm-up thing. It's really setting the ground. Any questions so far?
All right. Today we're going to review two of our foundational practices, meditation practices, concentration and choiceless awareness. So, first, concentration. By concentrating our attention on some object, we train it to be undistracted. So the first thing we need to do here is to choose an object of meditation. So there are lots of possibilities in different uh, traditions, uh, and even within one particular tradition, uh, you could do it a, a mantra, you could do a visualization, and the one, of course, that we recommend at the center for people who don't already have a, a meditation object is the breath, which comes from a Buddhist tradition, but the, one of the advantages of the breath is it doesn't have any theological baggage, you don't have to believe in anything, and so forth. You just let the breath do what it wants to do. If it wants to go fast, fine. If it wants to go slow, fine. If it wants to be continuous and turn around, fine. If it wants to pause between, fine. If it wants to change rhythm in the middle of it, fine. All you're there to do is to be with it. So, I'm going to give the instructions referring to breath. So, it's the same basic instruction. There may be a little variation if you're doing a mantra. If I tell you to watch in detail the in and out, just means watch in detail, you know, each syllable of the mantra. So, what we are aiming for in a concentration practice is stability of attention. A state, it is a state, a meditative state of stable attention. The Buddhists call this calm abiding, and actually it has two qualities. It has the stability of attention, that's the first one we develop, but it also has to have a quality of clarity. Clarity of the mind, not necessarily clarity of the object. Here's Latte Rinpoche, he describes it. The mind is like a mountain, able to abide firmly and steadily on the object. The meditator has great clarity and feels that he or she could count the particles in a wall. So this is very important because it is the clarity that allows us to have insights. Without the clarity, there's no insight. So we could have stable attention, but no clarity, and then we're missing really the point of the meditation, the ultimate point of the meditation. So just two things to keep in mind, and we'll talk a little bit more about this down the road here when we get to the main faults of meditation. But those are the two things that characterize a state of stability or calm abiding. Then the actual practice requires proper posture. If you can, if you're limber and young enough to sit on a pillow, that's probably the most stable way to, to sit for this kind of meditation, but a chair will do just fine for this. You want your body to be upright, <coughs> but not rigid. So it's alert but there's no tension in it. Very relaxed. You want to find some place to put your hands where they won't be fidgeting, so you can fold them in your lap, you can put them on your thighs, it really doesn't matter. It's a good idea to, once you find your proper posture, to always come back to that same posture. For this meditation, you want to keep your eyes open. They can be half open. The gaze falling someplace comfortably in front of you, uh, starting off slightly down, 
and you're not staring at any particular point, but you're just setting your gaze like you're setting your hands so your eyes won't be roaming around looking for things. So the idea is the body's relaxed and still, and that helps to mirror the mind, the quality of mind we want, which is relaxed and still. Then, the actual meditation practice requires the application of four principles, as does any spiritual practice. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. So we need to, of course, pay attention to our meditation object. For most of you, the breath. That's the first thing. We need to make a commitment to do that, even when it gets boring. And concentration practice is going to get boring. I have never met anybody who's done concentration practice who didn't at some point get bored with it. So we have to be able to have that commitment that we continue to do the practice. And when we get distracted, we have the commitment to, when we notice we're distracted, to gently but firmly bring the attention back to the breath. Then you need a detachment. And as I mentioned before, neither grasping nor pushing away. That is detachment. So if you're having a disturbing emotion and you want to get rid of it, that's not detachment. That's pushing it away. If you're having a pleasant emotion and you want to keep it going a little bit by generating a fantasy or something like that, that's not detachment either. That's grasping. So you allow whatever's arising to arise in its own time, hang around and go. We want to have the mindfulness about what's there, but we're not trying to interfere with it. We're not trying to manipulate it. Just letting it be. Very important. And then finally, surrender. And again, this is a tricky one for most of us because surrender isn't really something you do. It's something you cease doing. And once you're doing the practice, once it's going along, and in the beginning it will take some effort, you put some effort in, But once it's happening, then you have to let go of that. You have to surrender to the practice and let the practice show you what it's going to show you rather than trying to make the practice show you what you think it's supposed to show you. The Zen people have a wonderful saying, you turn Dharma, Dharma turns you. You turn the wheel of Dharma, which is the Buddhist teachings and practices. You put an effort in, you get them going and all that. And then you just you surrender to that and then the practices do you. So at some point, this is something you just get a, a knack of. When it's all going well, and then you see this little anxiety about, yeah, but nothing's happening yet, but it should be this, it should be that. And Joel said this, oh no, just relax. Give it time, it will show you what it wants to show you. So that's the fourth principle. So, we'll try around. Any questions before we try around? Yeah, good. Okay. Here we go.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Occasionally, what we need to do during this meditation, this kind of meditation, is use introspection to check for two faults, excitement and laxity. And introspection is we take a little piece of attention and we take it off the object and we turn it inward and we check and see what's going on here. Do I remember, first of all, where I'm at? And I'm supposed to be meditating and all that. Oh, if I lost track of all that. And then we look a little closer and we try to see the quality of our meditation. And there are two things that can go wrong. And one is an excited mind. And excitement in the mind means that the mind is thinking up lots of thoughts, usually pretty vivid thoughts, and usually pretty coherent thoughts. These are the thoughts that start to form into stories or plans or memories or whatever. They're usually quite compelling. The mind uh, gets interested in what's going on here. Oh yeah, oh this is important. So that's excited mind. And excitement can come in basically two intensities. One is a gross excitement. Gross excitement is defined where the mind is so excited that it loses all track of the meditation object. That's a very excited mind. Then there's a subtle excitement. And subtle excitement is when the mind learns, or attention learns to divide itself. So some of the attention's on the breath, if that's your object, and it's going right. But another part of your attention is sort of sneaking off and checking out these problems that your thinking mind wants to work on. So you haven't lost total track of the breath, but you also don't have undivided attention on the breath. So those are the two forms of excitement, the fault of excitement. And they come from making too much effort. And for most Westerners, at least, that's counterintuitive. When we find the meditation isn't going well, that we, we are unable to keep the attention focused on the breath, it keeps going off in these stories or problems or whatever, then we want to increase our effort. I'm going to just force that attention to stay on that breath. And that increased effort actually excites the mind more. So when you detect any kind of excitement, gross or subtle, what you want to do actually is relax the effort. Relax the effort to hold attention to the object. The other fault is laxity. And as you might guess, laxity is the opposite fault. 
And laxity is when there's a drifting. And laxity comes in uh, two forms, gross laxity and subtle laxity. And in gross laxity, well, sleeping is the grossest laxity. You just fall asleep. There may be thoughts going on in laxity, even in gross laxity. You may be having dream images or something, but they don't form into anything particular. It's the kind of state where if someone came along and said, a penny for your thoughts, you'd go, what? Oh, you wouldn't know what you're thinking about. Whereas if somebody interrupted your excited mind, you'd know what you were thinking about. Yes, I'm planning my remodeling. I've got to get this straightened up before I get home because the contract is coming, you know, at the 9 o'clock in the morning on Monday. So, in gross laxity, you've lost complete track of the object, just like in gross excitement, because you're drifting. In subtle laxity, you haven't lost track of the object. Part of attention's on the object, but the other part is drifting around a little bit. And this, of all the faults, is the worst of all, falling into a state of subtle laxity. And the reason it is, is because it feels good. It feels very effortless. The body's very relaxed. I am sure that it's good for all your medical problems, you know, your high blood pressure and all that. It's probably wonderful for that. And if the only reason you were doing meditation was for that, it would be great. But the trouble is, there is no clarity. There is no alertness in that state. And as I mentioned before, if there's no clarity, no alertness, then no insight can happen. But it feels so good that many people, especially people who don't have a teacher, who don't need a teacher because, you know, they're so advanced uh, compared to the rest of the human race, uh, they spend years, literally, just, you know, doing the subtle laxity. And it's not getting them anywhere, spiritually speaking. So be careful about that and try to discriminate that. True calm abiding has the stability, it has the relaxation, it has the sense of effortlessness, but it also has the clarity. And laxity, gross or subtle laxity, comes from making too little effort. So if you detect any kind of laxity there, you want to just make a little bit more effort. If you are concentrating on the breath as your meditation object, the way you can make more effort very precisely is to start watching the breath in more detail. You tune into it and, okay, where am I now? Oh, okay, it's the out-breath. Okay, now that's the turnaround. Ah, here comes the in-breath. You want to be right there with the breath. That's what it means to increase the effort. If it's a mantra, the same thing. Focus in on each syllable. So this is uh, something that you have to find for yourself in your own practice. What is the proper amount of effort for a concentration practice? Not too much, not too little. Uh, then we can further refine our practice by focusing the attention now not just on the full breath, but more narrowly on some point in the body through which the breath passes. And the three traditional points recommended are the belly, the heart, 
or the nostrils. If you choose the belly, you want to notice the rise and fall, the sensation of the rising and falling of the stomach muscles. A lot of people can get a uh, focus on the heart area, where the breath passes by the heart, and there's a sensation in there, and that can be a point of focus. And then another traditional one is the nostrils, or actually the upper lip, if you don't have a mustache. For those of us who have mustaches, it's, uh, I've never been able to feel anything on my upper lip. But you can feel the breath as it passes in and out of the nostrils or as it passes in and out over the upper lip. So you can focus the attention narrow and narrow down to one of these spots. And then you can really start to get a uh, very, very sharp kind of concentration practice. Okay, so let's try another round. Same thing, concentration practice, but now we're going to use introspection to try to detect these faults, and then you can make the proper adjustment and effort based on that. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Here's the Buddhist sage Ashvagosha. People are tied down by a sense object when they cover it with unreal imaginations. Likewise, they are liberated from it when they see it as it really is. Hence, the sense object itself is not the decisive cause of either bondage or emancipation. It is the presence or absence of imaginations which determine whether attachment takes place or not. So what he's saying is, phenomena themselves that arise and pass in consciousness are not a problem. They are not the cause of delusion. It's the imaginations 
the thoughts, the concepts, the ideas, and so forth, that we superimpose upon them, and then, of course, take that to be real. We could say we confuse that with the phenomenon itself. That's what causes delusion. And the same thing is true of emotions. The naked experience of emotion, as we talked about before, is neutral in the sense of being positive or negative or anything else. It's when we superimpose upon our emotions the story of I. That's when we fall into delusion. So the question for us is, how can we see phenomena, and for this retreat particularly emotions, as they really are? And it's easier to see simple phenomena. So we are going to start by trying to discriminate between simple phenomena that arise and the names, the labels, the thoughts that we impose upon them. So I walk uh, down the forest trail and I see a tree and I say, oh, it's a dug fir. Now, there's no problem with that, saying, oh, it's a dug fir. In fact, it's actually quite useful. If I own some property and I have trees and I have loggers coming, I want to be able to tell them, hey, don't cut down those rare old redwoods. You just cut down those diamond dozen second growth dug fir. But the dug fir is not a dug fir. You can search every little inch of it. You're not going to find any label or anything that says, I'm a dug fir. So what is it? Well, you can't say what it is. The minute I say what it is, I've superimposed something on it. I want to be able to have the experience. I, or I should say, I need to be able to have the experience as it really is, beyond words, beyond thoughts, beyond concepts. So, how do we do this? We do this through a practice called choiceless awareness. And in choiceless awareness, we learn to discriminate. All the phenomena that arise and then the, the thoughts that our mind superimposes on. So, uh, you're sitting there and there's a little sensation in your leg. Oh, you got an itch. Uh, you hear a whistle. Oh, that's a train going by. Caw, caw, caw. That's a bird. You might even identify as a crow or something like that. Normally, the mind hears these things, identifies them, and then, oh, it's satisfied. It thinks it knows something and it goes on. But we want to get below that. We want to be able to tease apart this labeling and the actual phenomena. Phenomena rises and labels. So, how do we do it? We do it through choiceless awareness, and choiceless awareness grows naturally out of a concentration practice. We talk about them as though there are two practices, but really it's a continuum of practice. And the analogy that I've used for years, and most of you heard over and over and over, it's like a theater light. Some theater lights you can narrow down into a spot, and you can... Uh, put it on some object on the stage and hold it there 
And then you can expand it into a floodlight that illuminates the entire stage. So what we are doing when we uh, go from concentration to choiceless awareness, in concentration, we've narrowed this theater light down to a spot, and now we're opening it up, opening up, opening up to illuminate the stage. Notice this doesn't affect anything on the stage. We're not changing anything on the stage. If there's a lot of activity on the stage, there's a lot of activity on the stage, whether we were concentrating on our object, maybe there was a, a lot of other stuff going on, fine. And when we open it up, there could be, you know, dancing going on and all sorts of things. It doesn't matter. But what we are trying to do is hold the light still. So the light isn't just rushing after everything that's happening on the stage. So the light is, uh, as they uh, talk about in Buddhism, the light is a mirror that just reflects everything that's put in front of it just as it is. And when we are able to do that, then we can start to see what is going on. We can start to experience how phenomena arises and our minds start to think about it. Now, it's very difficult to get our minds to stop their normal process of labeling. They just are so habituated to it that they're just trained to do that. It's almost impossible just to say, okay, stop for a while so I can just experience this without a label. But what we can do is simplify the scheme the mind uses to label. So normally the mind uses the language that you speak. And that's a very complex scheme. When we label something a dug fur, there's all sorts of stuff that goes with that. Ideas about biology and forest management, whether you like trees or a tree hugger or not, or, uh, and so forth. So we want to substitute a much more simple scheme. So our scheme is going to be to label phenomena according to the field in which they appear. Now we're still making primitive distinctions. We're going to distinguish between six fields of consciousness. Bodily sensations, sounds, tastes, smells, visual field, and then the mental field. Thoughts. Not just formal thoughts, but images, memories, all that kind of stuff. It all goes in the mental field. So when we're doing choiceless awareness, I'm sitting here and I hear the whistle. Boo, woo, 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 fine. Then I label that sound. I hear caw, 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 sound. Not bird, but sound. I hear a car horn, sound. Whatever it is, if it's in the, the auditory field, it's sound. Now, interesting, if I'm sitting here and I hear the whistle, woo, woo, and I see my mind say, oh, that's a train, I label that, oh, that's a train, that's thought. And if I hear the bird call and my mind says, oh, that's a crow, oh, that's thought. So there's nothing that arises in this that I can't find some label for, including the thoughts. Thoughts. 
And that's all there is to it. We start with concentration, we slowly expand, and we go through each field. So we expand out the attention from being on the breath to bodily sensations. Yes? So if an emotion arises, um, depending on where we catch it, if we catch it at the sense state level, it would be sensation, and if we catch it at the label, at the interpretation, it would be thought? Yes, very good. And emotions are the one thing that sometimes includes two categories here, thought and sensation. So whatever is most prominent about the emotion. If it's an emotionally charged thought, that's just a thought. But if you actually get a mm in the stomach or something, okay, sensation. So then we go from the sensation and we stay that, with that for a little bit and then we expand into the sound field. And we're expanding. We're not leaving the sensation. Now we're expanding. Okay, now I'm becoming aware of the sounds. All that stuff. We won't uh, specifically linger with smell and taste because it's rare that it's going to arise in the meditation room here. But certainly when you're having uh, your meals and stuff, you can become aware of that. And when we continue to do this practice informally, you can identify, oh, that's a smell, that's a taste, and so forth. And then we go on to a sight. And then finally, we include thought itself. I mean, if thoughts are rising while we're doing this, label them thought. But finally, we are totally embracing thoughts to arise. And we notice thoughts, label thought. It's called choiceless awareness because we are not choosing any particular object or phenomena as our meditation object. They are all equally our meditation object. So now, there's nothing in terms of pure phenomena or even isolated thought to distract us. We don't think of it as a distraction. What is still a distraction is if we get caught up in a chain of thought that takes us away from our practice. That is still a distraction. So when you notice that, okay, fine. Just cut through the train of thought, come back to your practice. Then the other, one last thing here is don't try to label every phenomena that's arising. You'll go crazy. So you just relax and you label what phenomena presents itself most prominently. So if you're in the sensation field, you know, there's all this buzzing stuff going on, and then, you know, there's a little pain in the knee. Ah, sensation. Mind says, that's pain. Oh, thought. And if it seems to persist, fine. Don't go off looking for something else. It'll go away eventually. Everything's impermanent. All these phenomena are transitory. Just be patient. Something else will present itself. You want to have your attention wide open like that mirror. Just reflecting whatever is is happening in front of you. Okay. Let's do then one round. As I said, I will uh, guide you for one round. Here we go.
So begin with concentration on your breath. Occasionally check for excitement or laxity, decrease or increase your effort slightly as needed. sensations are most prominent at any time, simply label it sensation. If a thought arises about any sensation, label that thought. Expand attention into the sound field. Become aware of whatever sounds arise. 
label the prominent ones sound. If your thinking mind tries to identify any particular sound with a name, label that thought. If any sort of odor should happen to waft by or a taste arise in your mouth, label them smell or taste accordingly. Now let attention flow out into the visual field. And if any particular phenomenon in the visual field presents itself, label it sight. mind tries to identify a visual phenomenon with a name, label the name thought. Now expand your attention to include the mental field. Remember to practice detachment. Whatever thoughts arise, don't grasp after them, don't push them away. 
allow them to rise and pass on their own. And the most prominent ones simply label thought. attention to evenly fill the total field of consciousness awareness. It encompasses all phenomena that arises and passes. most prominently, label it according to its field. Whether it be a bodily sensation, a sound, taste, smell, sight, or thought. distraction in this practice is if your attention is carried away by a train of thought. If that happens and you notice it, simply interrupt the train and return to your practice.
future when you do this practice without a guided meditation, try to find your own pace of expanding attention. If it goes faster, but you're mindful, that's fine. If it goes slower, even if you don't finish in one round, that's fine too. Through practice, you'll find your own pace. Okay, there are three ways we can refine this practice of choiceless awareness. And we refine these practices depending on where we are with the practice. There's no set time like you do the practice for three months and then you refine it or something like that. So it totally depends on where you are with the practice, whether you're ready for a refinement. So I'm giving you these refinements, and some of you have already made these refinements because we've covered them before on retreats and so forth. So if you're not ready for the refinement, don't worry about it. If you've already made the refinement, don't worry about it. The first one is to drop the labeling. The labeling of the phenomena in each of the fields, the six fields of awareness. So we've been practicing, if a sound arises... A bird call, we label it sound. If it's a train whistle, we label it sound. If it's a gurgling stomach, we label it sound. Whatever it is, we pay no attention to what the language tells us is going on. We simply label it sound. And the same thing with all the phenomena rising in the other fields. At a certain point, you'll find that that in itself becomes a distraction. That actually you can identify the phenomena without having to label it. And I don't mean identify the way we normally think of identification. That is, the mind identifies, oh, that's what it is. But there's just a direct knowingness. And when that starts to happen, then you just drop the labeling. The second adjustment is... Uh, allowing thoughts to self-liberate. Many of you have heard this before, but this is extremely important because no matter how many times we hear these teachings about thoughts, the mind, when it starts to meditate, almost inevitably falls into this assumption that thoughts are the enemy. We've got to fight thoughts. We've got to wrestle with them. We've got to beat them down. We've got to do something with them. And most people struggle through that, and then they find they actually can't do it. And that's a good place to get to. Because then you're ready to realize that thoughts, like all other phenomena, are impermanent. Each individual thought is impermanent. Oh, that's a train whistle. 
O's impermanent, that's impermanent, A's impermanent, trains impermanent, whistles impermanent. They arise so rapidly one after another that they seem to have a solidity that they don't really have. So if we become sensitive to our thoughts and we observe, we see that this is really what's going on. And that we don't have to do a thing. They self-liberate. We just have to allow them to self-liberate. This is very important for us because if we can't allow thoughts to self-liberate, we cannot liberate emotions from the story of I and the thoughts that make up the story of I. The way we are going to liberate our emotions, as we'll see in a few days, is we are going to generate them using a story and then we're going to allow the thoughts that make up that story to self-liberate and then we'll be there face to face with the naked energy of our emotions. So this is not an idle exercise here. This is a basis of this practice and and many other kinds of practices you'll do. This allowing thoughts to self-liberate. The third one is letting go of the effort to hold attention still. Surrendering that effort. Earlier, I compared choiceless awareness to a floodlight that lights up a whole stage, but itself doesn't move. So there could be a whole lot of activity going on on the stage, but the light isn't going anywhere. Also, uh, an image from the Buddhist tradition uh, I use of the mirror that is still and reflects everything just as it is that arises in front of it. Those images are great to get us going, and that's uh, wonderful to give us a sense of the undistracted mind that we're trying to achieve. But at a certain point, and if you don't detect this, don't worry about it now. This is a refinement. At a certain point, you might feel there's a little tension in the mind that comes from the effort of trying to hold attention still. Attention does not naturally just sit still. It moves around. So if you detect this effort, this little bit of tension, try letting now attention go where it wants to go. So if it hears a whistle, oh, attention goes there, woo-woo. And then the naming comes in. Oh, that's a train whistle. Oh, attention goes to that. No problem as long as we are not distracted by it. As long as we can let, especially the thoughts, arise and self-liberate. The only problem comes is when we go to that thought, oh, it's a whistle, and then the mind says, oh, but I'm not supposed to be thinking it's a whistle. I'm supposed to be experiencing this nakedly. Well, maybe I should, uh, da, 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 and you're off on a whole very spiritual inner dialogue, but you're lost in thought. So it's not necessary to hold attention still, to have an undistracted mind. And to have a totally effortless undistracted mind, in fact, you have to be able to identify that little effort and just surrender. And that's what makes this spacious awareness. That's the way we technically use that term, as opposed to just choiceless awareness. So the only difference between spacious awareness and choiceless awareness is this little business of letting go of that last effort to hold attention. 
Let me read you a, uh, a description of spacious awareness by a Tibetan master, Sukne Rinpoche. I have learned uh, that uh, from Andrea, who just came from a retreat with him, is actually his name is Sony Rinpoche. But for the sake of consistency with all my other talks, I've called him Sukne, I'm going to stick with Sukne. So everybody from talk to talk will know who I'm talking about. <coughs> anyway, here's his teaching. We need to be resting on nothing, like a bird soaring in the sky. There is space above, there is space below, there is space in front, behind, and on both sides. And the bird is not dwelling on anything whatsoever. It is soaring in midair. That is the way to sit. Do not lean forward into something. Do not lean back into something that you rest on. Do not settle down on your seat either. Be suspended in midair with space above, below, and on all sides. As a matter of fact, your very being is space as well. It is no different from space. So, he's talking about this sense of this spaciousness of mind that we're in. The bird is soaring. It's not standing still. It's not static. It's soaring. That's like that attention moving. And yet it isn't going anywhere. It doesn't have goals. It doesn't have agendas. It's free. That's the spacious kind of mind that we need to have here. Okay, so, to sum up the three refinements, the first one is when it becomes a burden, when it becomes an obstacle, a distraction, drop the labeling. If you at all find yourself getting some battle with thoughts, fighting thoughts, saying, oh, these thoughts just keep coming, what not, stop all that. Look directly at the thoughts. Watch them self-liberate. And if you detect any little extra effort to hold attention still, ah, just surrender that effort. Okay, so let's... Uh, Let's try choiceless awareness with these three refinements. Here we go. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.